Hi, I'm Paul, and this is Arconnect Sessions, episode number six. I'm joined today, as always, with my co-hosts, Amelia, Donna, and Ken. Uh, today, we'll be discussing student debt and the effects it has on architects. Um, this discussion is rooted in an ongoing feature we recently launched, uh, spearheaded by Nicholas Carodi, called The State of Debt and the Price of Architecture. Uh, we're fortunate to have two students joining us from SciArc today that will be sharing their own personal stories on this issue. We'll also be discussing the inaugural Chicago Architecture Biennial titled The State of the Art of Architecture. And we'll also talk about Arconnect's new lexicon series uh, slash resource. So before we jump into the architecture, how was everyone's week? Donna, how was your week? Good. Good. Things are, things are good. I, uh, last Wednesday night, went to our local Monumental Awards. The Monumental Design Awards are the uh, Indianapolis Chamber of Commerce Awards for Design. And um, I went as part of the AIA group. I won an honor award there last year for the, the bus shelters that I did. But this year, I didn't submit anything. And I just went as a, as a participant this year. The winner of the main big Monumental Award is the new Eskenazi Hospital here in Indianapolis that was designed by HOK. It's a gorgeous gorgeous building, really modern, super contemporary. And they had a fantastic art program that my very good friend, Michael Kaufman was in charge of. So lots of great art in the building. And it's kind of a U-shaped building. And the central courtyard is a space called Common Ground, which actually has a little cafe that was designed by Diller Scofidio Renfro. And even though I'm still mad at them about MoMA, I will say that this little building is is gorgeous. It's just a great, really cool integration of um, building and landscape all together and just, just really fantastic and surrounded by great art. And uh, it's a really cool building. So I'm glad it won. And of course, my husband had a part in it. He installed the enormous, one of the, the biggest piece of public art in the city that was designed by the architect Rob Lay out of L.A. And so, yeah, it's a great building and it was fun to be there and, and see that get awarded. Awesome. So uh, do you think we could include some photos of the, uh, of the building and the, and the artwork? Absolutely. Yeah. There's a link to a great video that Rob made of the, his installation as well. So that's, it's a good little video. Um, and yeah, and the, the DSR building is just so cool. I actually have not been in it since it opened. I was there right before they opened. I got a, a tour of the art basically, and the cafe wasn't quite yet open then. So, but it's really cool. It's nice to hear that you're not holding uh, a grudge still against Diller and Scafidio and Renfro. Oh, I, I hold a grudge. You do, I hold a okay. Grudge. Yes. <laughs> but you can see beyond that. But I'll, I'll, I'll admit when they do good work. I'll admit with any when anyone does good work. But no, I, I'm going to hold a grudge forever. <laughs> that's, that's fair. That's fair. The other thing going on is I got a uh, a very good. Fr I'm not going to say a lot about this yet, but a friend of mine was invited to be in a competition, an invited competition for a building, and he has asked me and one other person to team with him. So we're going to be working on that over the next month or so. And I haven't done a competition in ever, wow. I don't think. So this will be fun. That's great. What kind of competition is it? Well, I don't want to say much about it, frankly. Sure. <laughs> so as we do a little bit more, I'll, I'll say more. But it's a quick deadline. It's December, early December. So it'll it'll be soon. Oh, good. So we'll, we'll find out soon. Yes. Very exciting. Congratulations yeah. on that. Yeah, we'll see. Ken, how was your week? It's been progressing, um, kind of winding down on my current job. Before I did that, I had one, I think I had one last interview with another firm, um, just kind of seeing what, you know, just practicing that muscle of interviewing. And that was, uh, that was an event. I actually had to take an AutoCAD test, which I hadn't, I've never actually taken an AutoCAD test before. So 
I advise anyone going out to interview to make sure you practice your AutoCAD skills. You, you might get laid down with that one. It's pretty humbling because there's like 50 million ways to do something on AutoCAD and you're like kind of stuck with this test that really is kind of, con, you know, um, confining. So, um, so that's been going on. And then, um, unfortunately for, for myself as a, um, Midwesterner, but digging out of the snow for the past couple of days and dealing with uh, typically January temperatures at this point in Minnesota. So, well, at least you have a working heater. Yeah, thankfully. Uh, <laughs> you have to come out to LA. I love it. I love coming out to LA. <laughs> I think it was, it was in the nineties on the weekend. Oh man. Oh, sorry. That sounds horrible. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, I would, I would take snow over nineties personally, but, um, but I, I can imagine that it would get a little, little daunting, especially when it hits you that early. Yeah, this or last year they were talking. We had snow on a little snow on uh, Halloween, just a light dusting. But I think this is the pretty much the first heavy snow, and hopefully um, it's not going to be as bad. I mean, we had frost depths in Minnesota just outside the Twin Cities that were seventy inches deep. Wow. Yeah, it's pretty pretty, and it causes a lot of. Causes a lot of flooding in basements, and so there's a lot of issues around that in the spring when the, there's no place for the water to discharge if we have a wet spring. So that was a bit of a problem here as well. Oh no! So when it snows like that in in uh, in your area, do schools get shut down? They shut down. Yeah, they yeah. shut down on Monday because just we only got three inches here in the city, but just north of us, there was about twelve to fifteen. Wow. Yeah. And nobody's really prepared for that yet in Minnesota. Um, so you really have to. And what I mean by that is that everybody's driving too fast. They're not testing their brakes. So it's really it's it's quite a it's quite a mindset you have to kind of put yourself in when you're when you're you know, living here in Minnesota around this time of year. So it's it's um, it's a bit daunting. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, it's funny how, um, you know, it was 36 degrees here today, and I just felt like I was frozen all day long. <laughs> and last January, when it was 10 degrees, you know, by that time, you're used to it. And you feel like, oh, yeah, hey, 10 degrees, that's not a big deal. Yes. But today at 36, I was just, I was miserable. It was, yeah. That's exactly yeah, what happens it was, here. It, it, you, ha you do get yourself into a mindset of yeah. your body accepting this, this, this weather. Yeah. Usually, uh, the first two years I lived here, it usually took, it was a... I kind of had this luxury of like rolling into the, the winter and kind of getting used to it. And then the past two years, it came on full bore really early and you don't have really a whole lot of time to acclimate to it. And your body just kind of just is rejecting the whole premise of actually living in this part of the country. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Like Arizona can't can't ever look as good as it does right about now. You know, <laughs> barely two weeks into November. So, yeah. Well, I'm starting, I'm starting to feel a lot less, uh, sympathy for my dog because my dog's been shivering lately <laughs> because it's been getting down to, you know, like low sixties oh. and my dog is, you know, it's a little, he's a little guy and he's kind of a wimp. So I, I, I'm just going to have to tell him about your story. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'll send you some photos of the snow, my dog in it. Um, other than that, just progressing with my, um, with my butcher shop project dealing with, um, kitchen consultants and understanding how all of that equipment works so it's it's kind of fun so that's pretty much all that's going on right now and i haven't been but i might and i might go the uh, minnesota aia convention's happening this week so let's see other big news here in the twin cities huh amelia how's your week been 
It's been really good. Um, I don't have to shovel snow or <laughs> make sure my house is heated perfect, uh, well enough for the balmy 60 degrees uh, Southern California. So I actually went last night to go see a movie and I saw Interstellar, which was awesome, I have to say. Oh, excellent. Um, I'm not really a Christopher Nolan fan usually. Um, I was kind of annoyed by the Batman movies and and, and what was the other one? Inception. Um, but something about this movie and like the way that it approaches science fiction just like totally did it for me. I think it has a lot to do with kind of intercepting Matthew McConaughey's celebrity at this point in time where he's not just like a romantic comedy bum and instead is kind of like somehow more respected. <laughs> and uh, it's it was just a great, a great science fiction feature. I would totally recommend it to anybody who's into that kind of thing. Well, you don't have to twist my arm. <laughs> I, I've been I've been dying to see that since I started seeing the trailers last year. Yeah, it's like I knew nothing about it really going into it, like very little. And I'm kind of glad that I did because there are a lot of plot points that are like remarkably similar to other science fiction movies without giving anything away. And I think knowing that beforehand, I might have been a little bit like more, eh, is it really worth it? But the way that it approaches a lot of these concepts are just like really fascinating. The visuals are incredible. Um, and I just had a lot of fun. It was, it was very cool. One of the things I saw on the internet is that you really had there was somebody pushing this idea that you had to understand this complex science before you went to see the movie. Was it really that over the top? Well, there are. So one of the lines from the movie that is like just absolutely ridiculous is uh, one of the physicists on this mission. I won't explain anything about, but um, one of the physicists says that's relativity stupid, like a couple times. <laughs> so there's all of these references to like, oh yeah, that's just how black holes work, or that's just how relativity works, or that's just how time travel works, where you know, if you read A Wrinkle in Time in elementary school, you might have some idea of like what this is. But I, I would say that really only having any uh, basic physical knowledge of like astrophysics or whatever will probably only hurt you. It'll probably only make it more confusing and annoying. I just say like, you know, leave your, uh, give up, sign your poetic license or let Christopher Nolan have his poetic license with all this science fiction stuff and just like go along with him because the ride is too good. And I think... Also with movies like this, sometimes terrible dialogue is actually a good thing <laughs> because it doesn't weigh things down. It's like, oh, this is a very serious science fiction movie. Um, there are a lot of references to kind of like other things that are very self-conscious and I thought funny. Um, one of the robots in the movie is named after one of the consulting world famous physicists who worked on the movie. So stuff like that. It's like very self-conscious, but I think very good. So all of those, if you're in for a three hour, like escape from the cold, totally go for it. Excellent. I know my husband really wants to see it and I'm sure I would enjoy it also. So yeah. 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 And Paul, I heard you had some kind of, uh, I wouldn't say uh, extra stellar travels, but you went into <laughs> another atmosphere of sorts this weekend. Yeah. Well, I guess uh, three atmospheres. Um, yeah. It's not, not space, but it's, it's pretty similar. Um, I, I, I scuba dive pretty, pretty, uh, regularly, but, um, on the weekend I, uh, dove an oil rig about 10 miles off the, uh, off the coast of LA. And, uh, I mean, I've, I've dived the, uh, the oil rigs before and it's just, it's just so amazing. Um, it's really, I mean, for the, for listeners out there that, are obviously interested in architecture. If you dive, you have to try uh, diving an oil rig. It's really, it's like, it's like navigating a skyscraper, an unfinished skyscraper without gravity. 
And, you know, and while the structure of this skyscraper is just caked with like psychedelic mix of colors from like anemones and uh, shellfish and, you know, just uh, the life down there. I mean, it, it's uh, the oil rigs have to be cleaned fairly, fairly regularly because of the uh, of the drag on the on the structure from from currents. So when they're when they're cleaned by by tech divers, you know, all of this delicious food for sea life is, is, uh, disengaged. So the sea life down there, like the seals and the fish, um, they become very friendly with divers. So it's, it's almost like this, uh, surreal underwater fantasy world underneath these, these oil rigs. So that was, that was amazing. And just the experience of, of navigating a structure without any gravity, you know, it puts everything into a different perspective. It just gives you, um, it provides you this experience to, you know, navigate that that uh, vertical x-axis in the same way that you that you'd normally navigate, you know, a building in, in two dimensions. So it was it was really amazing. I'll uh, I've, I've got some photos and, and some videos that I took on the weekend that I'll include in the show notes if you want to get a better look at what the experience is like. Okay, so I'm terrified of water. I hate water. <laughs> I don't really swim. Um, and I would never consider scuba diving, but the way you just described that as being able to move in both axes without gravity, it, it makes me feel like I want to try scuba diving now. <laughs> you know, you know what I've actually, I've, I've found myself many times um, since starting scuba diving a few years ago, um, I found myself many times just sitting down somewhere. It's often if I'm at like a boring lecture or something and I'm just kind of, I'm feeling this need to, to escape. And I just feel myself, I can feel myself, you know, floating up and just drifting away, you know, because it, it, scuba diving gives you that, that, uh, experience of not being held down, you know, by, by, uh, by gravity. And it's just, it, it opens up your movement in a way that, um, you just cannot experience on land. I mean, you have to either be in, in space or, you know, in some other type of, uh, you know, neutrally buoyant environment. Uh, when I when I was watching Gravity, actually, um, they apparently they did a really amazing job. It looked very realistic, but it made me realize how many similarities there were um, or there was to moving around in, in space as as uh, as you move around in, in the water, you know, and how you, how you have to use your body in a different way to move. Yeah, that sounds absolutely yeah. amazing. Oh, it sounds beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds incredible. Yeah. And you just saw the movie, Amelia, so you're thinking about space too. Exactly. I'm so tempted to just relate everything that you just said to the film because so much comes up with it. And there's all of these, if you want to discuss it in relation to gravity, I think there's some really interesting things that they do with how the film is actually made, this, the cinematography of the film. Because um, I remember uh, in gravity, there's, they did this, they use this um, particular robot that is also used in a lot of architectural um manufacturing scenarios to move the camera around in this seemingly weightlessness way. So like as if Paul's GoPro underneath the water was also attached to this robot that kind of creates that similar feeling of weightlessness. Um, whereas in, I want now just to bring it back to Interstellar, it's like a totally different filmed experience where it's much more about like the people's experience, the people's perspective from floating around in space than it is just representing giant swaths of negative space. So Donna, like you, I am um, 
terrified of scuba diving. I'm really good in the water, but the idea of that depth just like freaks me out beyond no beyond any belief. Um, so I, I think I'll t- take a step back, but I'll appreciate the uh, the films and the pictures, <laughs> and that's as far as I'll go. <laughs> well, just uh, just put the the video that I post on full screen mode and pretend. Um, one of the, one of the things that I captured in one of the videos that I'll, that I'll share is, um, I don't know if you've ever seen, you know, these gigantic schools of fish, you know, that are just so dense with fish that you can't even see through it. It just, um, there were, there were a lot of those. And in one, in one, uh, situation I was able to, because these fish are so, are so friendly with divers, I was able to actually go inside this, this like cloud of, of, uh, of fish and just swim along with them just surrounded by literally tens of thousands of of fish and it was it was a pretty pretty great experience yeah (laughs) wow see i'm afraid to even get that pedicure where they let the little fish nibble your toes so yeah that doesn't sound so fun to me that kind of creeps me out too (laughs) i think i well if these fish had started to try to eat you alive i think it might have been a little different so yeah i'm guessing i don't know (laughs) (laughs) it sounds amazing it sounds so beautiful. Yeah, it's uh, it's quite an experience. I mean, for for people out there that that have been thinking about it, um, I I can't recommend it any more than you know than anything. I mean, it's if you're in LA, I I would recommend if you want to learn. Um, my my friend uh, uh, Gabe runs a a dive shop called Ocean Safari. Um, actually, we we created the website for him um, last year. And it's uh, OceanSafariScuba.com. It's the best, best shop. And I'm not just saying that because he's a friend. Um, it's just the most amazing people with an emphasis on 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 safety. But, um, you know, and especially in a city like L.A. where it's just such this, you know, concrete urban sprawl, um, you know, you don't really get a, a sense of being connected to nature that much. It's amazing that you just get on a boat. You know, if you go to the oil rigs, it's only about 20, 20, 30 minutes away. Uh, we usually go to the islands, which are uh, further away, but it's um, it's just completely like, you know, like another world. Uh, it's like an alien landscape. Anyways, I'm not going to go on about this because uh, I've already gone on for long enough. But um, so maybe we should uh, we should move on to the topics, the stuff that people want to listen to. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the first topic that we're going to be talking about today is the topic of debt and what that means to to architecture and to architects. Uh, it's kind of been this um, uh, somewhat taboo topic to to talk about. I know that when I was an architecture student, I was aware of the kind of debt that people were were putting themselves into, but it wasn't something that was that was really discussed that much, especially the kind of emotional impact that that it it creates, you know the the questioning. Um, of whether you selected the right career path, uh, you know whether it's all all worth it. You know how to how to deal with debt as a as an architecture student when there's barely any time to to do anything on the side, including you know getting a, a job and uh, you know helping to helping to bring that that number down. So today we we're fortunate to have a couple students from SciArc, a uh, an undergraduate and a graduate that is going to be joining us to share a little bit about their stories. Amelia, do you want to, do you want to connect them and and tell us a little bit more about our guests? Sure, definitely. Um, So we are joined today um, with some students from SciArc. Jared, uh, who is currently pursuing a BARC 
and Elliot, who is in a master's program, um, who are both at SciArc currently and were um, very generous to um, lend their time and come on the show and talk a little bit about their personal experiences with debt. Um, so Jared and Elliot, welcome to Arconnect Sessions. Hey, thank you. Thank you. So yeah, thanks for coming on. Um, so you guys are familiar with the feature. Um, was, the first issue was um, published by Nicholas about a couple of weeks ago or so, and it's been receiving a lot of positive attention on the site and really getting a lot of people talking about all the different implications of student debt and how it not only changes decisions about professional lives in architecture, but also how it changes you personally. Um, so I was wondering maybe if both of you could kind of give a little information about how you both came into the into architecture. And uh, maybe we'll start with um, you, Elliot, because you're pursuing an MR, so you had some prior experience with architecture before pursuing the graduate degree. Um, did you did your uh, decision to pursue an MR, um, was that affected at all by any state of debt that you are currently experiencing? Uh, well, I, I got my first degree in undergrad. I did it actually in interior design from VCU at the art school. And so at the time, I was still getting, like, it wasn't as expensive. Like, the cost of living and stuff was much lower in Virginia, so my debt wasn't as high as it is at this point. But um, I knew I always wanted to do architecture, and I think my decision to go to undergrad was... Um, I mean, I ultimately, like, I knew that I was going to go to grad school for architecture. So undergrad was kind of just get my four-year degree in something in a city that I like, and then, like, I could kind of go where I wanted. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, I was I was pretty much ready to take on the debt. Like, I kind of, I, I knew what I was getting into, but I didn't know that it was going to really skyrocket as much as it has in the past, like, five years. Yeah. So, uh, Jared, what what about you? How has your um, perspective on architecture changed after dealing with issues of debt? I mean, I think for me, uh, getting in, I mean, architecture is something that I've always wanted to do since I was, I don't know, 10, just, you know, being able to design. And um, I think, yeah, I mean, totally the whole debt situation, especially here in America, it's it's gotten me to some sort of like jaded uh, attitude towards it. I mean, we have this sort of com competitive spirit, you know, it being in studio and being take, doing long hours and graduating with so much debt, it's like, you know, you're just basically a slave to this. And I mean, it's, it's funny to, to really think of it that way. But I mean, I think of myself maybe graduating, being an indentured servant in another country, trying to, uh, <laughs> you know, pay back my loans, but, you know, still doing the, what something that I love. But yeah, totally my attitude has changed. Mm -hmm. Now, I remember when we were speaking a little bit earlier about opportunities that students have to work while they are currently students um, and how often that can be a way to offset debt or at least offset future debt. Um, how do you guys, are either of you working currently while also being students? Yes, I currently am. Yeah, I am as well. I'm working at the wood shop here. At and over the summer, we both worked. Correct? Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, cool. So you guys are both um, employed currently at SciArc while also being students there? Correct. Correct. Okay. And did you make that decision particularly to offset debt? Yeah, ultimately it came down to, you know, whatever little bit I can do helps. And so I took on, uh, currently I'm TAing, but uh, what unfortunately happens is like tuition, like the cost that you get or the pay that you get is not really enough to put a huge dent or like to help you really feel like some sort of relief as you're working. Like right now I'm starting to question, like, is it, it's basically adding on an extra class when you go to TA or something. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm constantly asking myself, like, is this little bit of money worth it to add an extra class to 18 credit course load already. And that sort of, 
I mean, ultimately, like I would like to pay down my debt. So ultimately, I chose to teach and I want to build relationships with teachers. And so this allows me to do it. But it really becomes a question of like, it, it's almost not worth it in a sense. Yeah. Mm. Like because I, it's so little compared to your debt amount. Like yeah. It's almost just like a drop in the bucket. Right. Mm-hmm. I totally agree. I mean, uh, I'm working uh, just a woodshop job that like, is once a week. So for me, it's not not enough whatsoever to either you know pay anything other than i don't know groceries for the week so which helps (laughs) exactly (laughs) well donna this brings up something that you were referencing earlier um that the architectural lobby recently announced a uh, a statement on um overwork and unpaid overtime uh coming from different firms Uh, would you care to talk about that a little bit yeah so um I was a little bit connected to the AIA convention in Chicago uh, this summer. And one of the things that happened there was the architecture lobby went and did a um, a protest and they held up a, a banner that said, we are precarious workers. And they were talking about how architecture as employment is is so precarious for all of us that it's it's really not paying off enough of our debts. And it's and one of the things they did is did a survey of architecture workers and they got 236 responses. Now I'm assuming that people who went to the architecture lobby's website are for the most part emerging professionals and younger people because they would be more interested in this topic. But what they found from their survey was that of full-time workers 37% of them were also doing side work to supplement their income. And that was the reason they gave was they needed to supplement their income that they were getting from their job. 51% of them were doing unpaid overtime on weekends and 60% were doing unpaid overtime during the week. So you're talking about people who are working at least full time, if not more. And many of them are still feeling like, okay, they're not making enough. And, and uh, you know, a large part of that clearly is is student debt that has to be paid back. Um I think uh, I'm hoping we can talk further with Killian Riano. He's one of the people who's involved with the architecture lobby. Um, but they're they're really trying to shed light on the fact that we get such a, a deep and and strenuous education, and then our 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 starting salary and our and our and we rack up the debts while we're in school, and then our starting salaries tend to be so low. Related to this is. Uh, the one of the ACSA Atlas Project charts that I pulled up is a a return on investment graph. And it shows that um, if you go to law school versus getting a master's of architecture degree, you're looking at roughly the same tuition costs every year. But the starting salaries for a first year architecture graduate tend to be around $37,000 a year. And the starting for a law student graduate tends to be around 68. So you're looking at close to double in a year of work. Where is this? This is on an ACSA Atlas project graph. Yeah, I mean, uh, just speaking of law, I know that in LA, the the uh, average first year salary is over one hundred and fifty thousand a year. So this is so maybe when you average, you know, uh, uh, Des Moines, Iowa, and and LA, you're you're getting to sixty eight. But so you're, you know, you're, you're still looking at at a quite quite a di- a similar level of debt and a very different level of pay. Yeah. Upon graduation. Yeah. One thing that struck me really um, impactfully, actually, from the comments that were um, appearing on the student debt article is that some people were referring to this culture of debt as just kind of a culture of normalcy, that like in the U.S., everyone's in debt more more often than not, and that to be a student in debt isn't particularly remarkable, so that the idea of weighing debt as a negativity against um, any other motivators to go into architecture school isn't really a strong um, influencer against the case. 
but this seems like a pretty non-sustainable model to kind of develop. And I was wondering, then this is something that both Jared and Elliot, maybe you can speak to a little bit. Do you think that there's a substantial difference between students who pursue architecture education where they know that education will be paid for by the state, say in other countries, somewhere perhaps in Europe, a European university that provides um, their education for free versus someone who's pursuing architecture education in the States? Is there like, do you think that there's a real motivating difference between those two types of students? It's funny. I actually, um, I studied in Austria as an exchange and I was going to school with uh, people that were paying 18 euros Per, their, per semester, uh, while I was paying 18000 per semester here at Zach. <laughs> so what's that, like $35? Yes. <laughs> That's amazing. It's $23.14, actually. Oh, okay. <laughs> wow. Thanks for that conversion. Yeah, wow. I actually converted that, like, every day I was at the school. Be- but, you know, the facilities were okay. They weren't as up to, you know, SIARC uh, standards, but... You know, these these students were really, you know, they were really motivated about architecture. And because they had such a really motivating kind of uh, way of working in architecture, like they really were into it. And it was something that they were they had time to not stress about, you know, costs for us here in America. It's it's even worse. I mean, you're stressing out about costs and and also working and and design, you know, design itself is, is takes a while and. It adds to the stress. And so... What did the Austrian students think about your tuition? I mean, was that discussed? <laughs> it was them? discussed almost every bar that I went to. <laughs> um, they, they were... Where the important discussions take place. <laughs> exactly. <at the> bar. <laughs> it's just funny because all of them was like, yeah, we know that Sark's a good school and it has, you know, really a lot of amazing projects and a lot of amazing architects that come out of Sark. But the price is they would never pay that much. They would never in a million years pay that much to work. And I mean, and also, also Austrians are really, they have this culture of just, you know, being relaxed and being laid back and enjoying, you know, the moment. And it's just so funny that they said, you're crazy for taking out so much loans. And I said, that's American life, you know, <laughs> it's normal. Well, I wonder if that relaxed attitude is partially due to the fact that they're not facing any debt. That's right. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's I'm it's it's obviously a cultural thing, but I mean, it must be it must be a much nicer feeling being able to study and prepare yourself for a for a, a career without having to worry about money. Exactly. Right, and I guess a lot of the people that I know that uh, shopped for an architecture school based on the price, they usually I don't know if it was necessarily the best fit for them. So I have a lot of friends. I'm originally from the East Coast, and I know a lot of friends who stayed on the East Coast and studied at schools just based on the price that were cheaper. But what's funny is when you come to grad school tuition, like there's really not a huge difference. Like the grad school tuition just jumps up everywhere you go. And I mean, I couldn't find a school for less than like $20,000 a year. And so when these people like shop for these classes or they shop for these colleges, they just don't necessarily seem as happy or they don't feel like they've found as good of a fit is what I've noticed. So... So what about other students studying at SciArc who aren't from the U.S.? Do they have, uh, who might have come from countries where education is subsidized or simply just not as insanely expensive? Have you, have you guys talked to them about what their motivations were for coming to the U.S.? I mean, it seems like a lot of the international students ha- don't, yeah, have no problem uh, at all with debt or any of that sort. So they're just here to really reap the benefits of the American education system. And the sort of experience, I mean, for them, they work hard, but 
they also know that it's it's just part of our system. And I mean, I feel like a lot a lot of international students come here uh, having no problems with the with the cost. Right. Yeah. To study here internationally, you need to be able to, or any school really, I think in the U.S., you need to be able to prove that you have a certain amount of money that you can sustain yourself for a year, which, you know, a lot of U.S. students, like we wouldn't be able to prove that we could even pay groceries for the next month. But um, so I, I don't know if the tuition or the price is necessarily a concern for them, at least the ones I've spoken to. And I have to point out that there's been a, a big, I mean, there's been a lot of international coming to here at Syrac especially. I mean, there's yeah. not a lot of American students anymore as there was before. I mean, they, yeah, they definitely sympathize with like the tuition price, but in terms of like relating, I don't know if yeah, it's there's, the same. It's not a problem for them. I mean, it's, they could be able to sustain themselves outside of the, you know, academic uh, costs. Where are the international students coming from at Syarc mostly? Uh, we have a strong uh, Latin American presence, which is kind of cool. Right. Latin um, so we have South American, Latin American, or uh, Mexico. We have a lot. Also in China, a yeah. lot of people from Hong Kong and Beijing, mm-hmm. Mexico City, right. Venezuela. Not as many Europeans as I thought. Not not as many Europeans. I mean, one of my friends from Austria actually came and uh, from my studio back in Vienna came and mm-hmm. started studying at the AMARC II program. But uh, yeah, most mostly from either South America or China. Right. Hey guys, this is uh, Ken. Um, you know, I, 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 today I thought I had a lot of debt, uh, student debt. I thought my $68,000 was a lot of money uh, for a state school. For, <laughs> I'll trade you. <laughs> yeah, I know. For a state school, and I only have a BARC, and, and I'm satisfied with that at this point. Um, but I talked to a student today in Minnesota, or um, a graduate. Um, she has a, a master's, and she got her bachelor's in arts and her master's from the U of M, she has over $200,000 in debt. And it shocked me to no end. Um, is that the kind of debt you're talking about that you're carrying? <laughs> I mean, yeah. Everybody, I mean, not without getting specific. No, no, not, I won't get specific. But everybody I'm talking to, yeah, that's the normal. I mean, yeah. it, and my cousins, even that are studying in other fields, I know it's not the same because like you said, like law school, they're going to make more money. But I mean, they're carrying three hundred thousand. Right. Like a lot of my friends, like you said, just now are carrying two hundred thousand. Yeah, I actually worked at a a small firm in New York City, in Brooklyn, actually, and one of my coworkers, one of the fellow interns, was racking up two hundred thousand dollars in debt out of Columbia at a Ivy League school, working at a really small firm that didn't pay him, not even minimum, and so it's it's pretty sad. I mean, it's. It's a lot. Like nowadays, it it's for sure over a hundred grand. See that that to me is the is a big part of the problem because we when I was when I I graduated from school with some debt I had about twenty thousand in debt and it's one thing to take on twenty thousand dollars in debt or thirty or even sixty which is what my husband has um, but I think that everyone got into this mindset of oh it's worth it take on the debt for your education it's absolutely worth it you'll be able to pay it off once you start working and that number just started creeping up and up and up over the last twenty years and now suddenly people are graduating with more than a, a house worth of debt and they can't buy a house because they've got a house worth of they're paying a mortgage already um, and that I think it's just been like this you know this this analogy of the frog in the pot that the boiling point just goes the temperature goes slightly higher and slightly higher. You know, when I graduated with 20, that wasn't that big a deal. And then 
60, okay, that's a lot, but it's not that big a deal. And then now we're talking about 200,000. That's just astronomical. And it's, it's stunning that we could have gotten to this point. You know, I think there's people are looking for some kind of silver bullet. And I think on some level, you have this program that is, I don't know if it's made it through Congress, this bill is made, whether or not it's made it through Congress or not, about debt forgiveness on some level. But then it pushes you into a, a career path where 10 years in public service, when you just, you're trying to manage your debt, then you're, you're thinking about, well, 10 years out, what else can I do after 10 years? Can I do anything substantive beyond, you know, paying off that debt? Or, or am I just stuck in kind of a civil, as a civil servant? I mean, do you think that that's actually a realistic option for, for students? I mean, as a, you know, you go to CyArk, I can't imagine that you're thinking about being a civil servant or working for, you know, 10 years in one particular aspect of the profession. Could, could you see that as a viable option? Right. No, I mean, I absolutely don't think so. Just because, I mean, if you have any intention of getting licensure or just maybe even one day starting your own firm, like you really, I also, I'm not even really familiar with that many jobs that would be considered like, I think it's the, what do you call it? The civil sector where that uh, income or what do you call it? Where that debt forgiveness is given. But they also, I know they also have another program called income-based repayment where you pay 10% or so of your, or 15%, I think it is right now, and it's hopefully going to go to 10% of your income. But even that gets into a big hole because you're still paying for 25 years, like 15% of your income. And what happens at the end is you're like, oh, great, like I'm only paying 15% on this, of this income, but they tax you on what's left over. And with the interest rates, like I know when I first started, they're at 8.9% for a grad plus loan, like I mean, you're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars that are getting added up that you don't really see because you're just paying 15% of your income. And so at the end, you're asked to be taxed on, you know, $300,000. That's only like interest that you couldn't pay. And like that right there is going to be like a $90,000 payment. So it's almost like it sounds great, like income based sounds greater. But honestly, like, yeah, I mean, being a civil servant in that sense, it's after coming out of CyArk, it's like, it's kind of like, oh, I didn't go to CyArk to be this, you know, it's, it's one of those things where you probably have to be creative with your sort of ways of, you know, making income. I mean, I know I have a, my plan B would be being a bartender at night on weekends. <laughs> and I mean, and, and probably doing things on the side, like furniture design, but I, I you know, I think it's something that as an, as an aspiring architect, we kind of have to be creative with, I mean, our day job and what we do for, I guess, as a hobby. I think that's, I've been talking a lot about this with a lot of my peers about, you know, a little side thing, a little startup or something. It's, it's just, we just have tried to create this sort of other thing apart from the sort of boring, monotonous job that we'll hopefully, I mean, have. Well, that, I mean, that's what I was, I was telling my professional practice students in the midst of the recession, you're going to have to be nimble and, and think about ways to earn income that are not necessarily just from your job. Um, and that's exactly what you're saying you're, you're going to do. You're, you have a job, but then you also come up with, okay, can I do a, a million dollar idea startup that, <laughs> you know, that could maybe give you a windfall and let you pay off a chunk of it at a time or something. I think that's just the kind of thinking that, that people are going to have to engage in right now. Do you think, you know, when I, when I think about when I was in college and I thought about, you know, wow, they, 
they increased the Pell grants or they increased some of these grants. And I was like, wow, I'm going to get have a little more money and not be so dependent on loans. Ultimately, what followed was that the schools would raise their tuition rates. So there is never a, a point at which the student can actually get on top of anything because every time they incrementally increase the grant opportunities or even the sources of funding, automatically what happens is, is that the tuition goes up. And, you know, one of the things that's frustrating for me is that, and I think all of us, is that we're supposed to be problem solvers. I mean, this is, or we're solutions-driven industry, and yet we can't even grapple with this particular topic. And it's, it's, there's many tentacles that have to be managed here. You know, some of you, uh, one of you is, is, or both of you, are you interested in teaching? I mean, we know that adjuncts get paid shit. <laughs> we know professors get paid crap. We know that, you know, well, if they're getting paid crap, why is tuition so high? Do you actually sit down and kind of, you know, when I see some of these statements for, for what fees are for tuition, I almost wish, you know, we'd have that same kind of patient's bill of rights for, for the profession Say, what is it exactly I'm paying for? Because, you know, to be perfectly honest, I don't know what this fee means when I see capital enhancement fee. If I want to go to the grad school at the U, what's a capital enhancement fee? You know, we kind of take these things as though, you know, I didn't worry about the debt when I was in school. I didn't care. I just cared about getting a degree. But now it seems like, you know, in this, after this recession, everybody is much more conscious of, oh my God, I'm going to be saddled with debt. Shouldn't we, do you think it's, you know, makes sense for us to say, hey, what are we actually paying for? And break it down for me. Why is my, why am I paying as a resident, fourteen hundred or nine hundred dollars a credit for 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 a class. Why am I paying that? What's going into that money? I mean, that's that's totally a question that we all ask, and it's so so funny that we hear about uh, Germany opening up their education system to the world and saying that there's no tuition; it's free. It's even free for international students, and and I think that when that moment happened, I, I realized, wait we're paying like almost 40,000 a year. And, you know, is it going to the facilities? I mean, we have robots here. Are we paying for the robots? We, we got a grant for the robots. I mean, there's a lot of questions in that sense. And, you know, we don't have an idea about how much our instructors are getting paid, but it's, it's, it's definitely something that we always ask ourselves after. I mean, I think it's more the American students that are asking these kind of questions as opposed to like the international students, because for them, uh, it's a totally different system that it's just they accept it. But for us, it's 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 totally a question that everyone asks. Right. Yeah. Another question that I mean, I'm curious into that goes along the lines with grants is like, like as you said, the grants will go up, but the tuition will go up. One thing I find interesting is when I started, like you, they have the opportunity to do work studies to help like alleviate your loans, but the salary or I guess the hourly wage that you get paid to do those jobs, like work in the wood shop or work as a TA, that hasn't gone up. But what has gone up astronomically is tuition. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it's, I mean, that's another question I have too. It's like, if this tuition's going up, like where's this excess money going? That's not coming back to, you know, they employ it. Well, most colleges employ a lot of students, like work in libraries, work in wood shops, BTAs. And like, that's a question I have too. Well, I think that's a really good question. Um, I mean, yeah, it's the, the tuition is going up so quickly compared to just the cost of living in general. Yeah, especially in a place like Los Angeles. Um, 
And I think that because of these kind of com complete discrepancies between different costs of living expenses and costs of education and all this, that people are trying to kind of tweak the education system as it currently exists to be more entrenched within actual current economies. And Paul and I have talked about this a little bit in regards to the tech industry, how you see all of these different schools, so-called schools or um, resources popping up where you can get some type of accreditation in a super short and relatively cheap amount of time that will get you the minimum amount of skills to practically guarantee you a job in some form of the tech industry. And you know, you're not going to be associated with a reputable historic university. You're not going to be involved in research in the same way. You're just going to basically be enrolled in a, um, a new style of a trade school by some means. But this is actually like a model that so many people are, are desperately seeking and are, will actually get a lot of people into the, um, into the employment situation they want to be in anyway. Um, and so I find it really interesting how this debt situation, as extreme as it is, is motivating different uh, different um, ideas of what architecture education can be. So instead of having a five-year BARC program, maybe that really doesn't need to be as long as five years. Like, what is it exactly that is uh, that forced the architectural model into that, that um, pretty traditional academic model of five years or, or doing the bachelor's like that? Do you guys have um, particular ideas of how the education system like might adapt to those types of concerns? I mean, it's, I feel like I need, a, I, I should be, I deserve a master's after five years of architecture school. I mean, <laughs> um, I don't know. I mean, I really, I guess, are you pursuing the skill set? Are you pursuing the degree? I think that's like a major um, right. thing to differentiate. I mean, the skill set, I mean, there's been so many, uh, I've gone through so many softwares and, and it's, you know, I, I would admit that I learned a lot of, of different softwares and, and I am proficient in a lot of softwares. And um, I think the the kind of balance between the two, I mean, the education, the theory, the, the software, it for me, I think it was it, definitely worth the educational experience, but not the price. So I think it's the whole new model of, of this trade school. It definitely is something that's kind of, taking away from the sort of culture of the traditional academic system, which I think could be good for, to be productive as a society. Yeah, I guess ultimately, like what it comes down for, for me was the degree, just because, I mean, to say a skill set, like we still have a whole lifetime ahead of us to like keep acquiring skills and like essentially like I just want to get that degree so I can go out and practice architecture. But what I do appreciate about, I don't know if, I necessarily need it to be shorter, but I don't know if, like, after I graduate, I will have been in school for eight and a half years, which is really a long time. So I don't know if I'm necessarily for or against, like, shortening it because it does teach you how to think and it lets you go into the world and kind of helps you, like, problem solve. But have you guys heard of a relatively new company called Pave? No. Uh, Pave is, we actually uh, wrote about this on Arconnect about a year and a half ago. It's a startup that will can can allow students to kind of crowdfund their tuition um, in exchange for kind of um, paying off their investors in a in, in a different way over you know a period of time. I just I, I don't know. I mean it it, it was uh, it was launched 
over a year ago, but I haven't heard much about it. Um, I don't know if students are actually using this service or not. It sounds sounds great. No, I no. think we were actually talking about this sort of um, new system of sponsorship. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that you know, with um, it seems like inevitable with the new kind of economy that we're that we're dealing with right now, that the academic environment is going to be completely retooled. I mean, it seems like there are so many different opportunities now to, you know, fund oneself either through a startup or, you know, why can't that same, that same model be applied to education? Um, And also, you know, there's so many new alternative methods of, of education, you know, does, does the MARC and BRC, I mean, is that going to be as relevant in the future? Like what if, you know, what if you could uh, design your own curriculum, you know, utilizing new, new methods, uh, you know, brought forth through, you know, new technology, um, you know, through internet, you know, communities, uh, new, you know, new badging systems, uh, you know, badging is now kind of developing as a new form of uh, accreditation for highly specific skills, you know, so maybe you can uh, become, you know, skilled in, in certain areas that you wouldn't get an opportunity to, to get skilled at in school, but, you know, you could pursue an alternative path and Come skilled to do something, you know, pursue a, a, a career that or a niche career that that suits you better. I think the whole niche thing is is something that we've all kind of it's it's a, it's really much into the discourse here at Cyark about with architecture going into the information age, and we know a lot about different things that are connected to different things in architecture. Uh, the whole you know niche way of of where architecture is heading is is something that's a bit exciting. And I think coming from Sark and coming from a school that promotes itself as being a progressive voice in architectural academia, I think, I mean, I, I'm not a, totally against it. And I think it's, it's really exciting for the field and it gets things productive in that sense. I mean, but, I, but again, you know, the productivity with, with us being students that are, have been going on with so much loan debt, it's, it's kind of sad to, to really think of it being, you know, the new way where it's going. But then it's it, it's exciting to see, though. When, when you guys see NCARB and AIA and everyone trying to change the nature of how the profession actually license, how people get licensed in the profession, does that give you any hope for anything? I mean, that, that somehow that the profession will actually grapple with this particular problem as well? Or you think it's, you know, one of the things I think is interesting is when you talk about the the areas, the niche areas, and there's this ongoing discussion that, that um, the profession is bleeding professionals. It's not attracting um, students to get licensed. So that's part of the problem. So they figure they, they simplify the licensure process, um, have it so you can take, IDP while you're in school, maybe take some exams while you're in school. But part of what's fascinating to me, and I was thinking about this the other night, you know, just giving this some thought is that what's interesting about the profession is it is in a lot of ways, a very, it's a dead profession. It's a, if not dead, it's dying. And the, the, the things that you talk about can actually, I wondered if, do we need to worry about attracting talent to the profession or does the profession just need to change to kind of meet where people are today and do you think it's moving fast enough to kind of meet those challenges? Or do you think that you're just going to, that the profession, the graduates coming up will actually force the, force the discussion to go a different way? I mean, I think that there's a lot of 
architectural, architect, aspiring architects. And I can't really say, if I, I mean, I don't know for a fact if there's enough room for this many architects. We're, we're graduating. There, I mean, there's so many people graduating, and especially at this school, we're, we're only 500. But if you think about all the other schools, there are thousands of other graduates. And I can't really say, I mean... Right. I mean, I know most of the people I talk to are still very much interested in getting licensure, but uh, one thing, it is, it's pretty daunting to look at it and know that there's, I don't know, what is it, close to 6,000 hours that you need to uh, record before you can even sit down for your exams. And I know they shaved off a huge portion of them just recently, but for me, that was a little, uh, I kind of found it a little upsetting. I spent a lot of the summer working, um, for instance, I worked with an engineer and we were doing we were uh, writing grasshopper scripts to simulate like radiation and daylighting analysis. And so I know that I heard that they're getting rid of the, uh, what do you call that? The extracurricular or the elective hours, which it was a huge portion. I think it was about 1800. And so um, I think if anything, that's kind of getting more old fashioned to take it back to these just very vague cores. Well, thanks, guys. I really appreciate you coming on and adding your thoughts um, to the debt conversation. And it's certainly something we're going to keep looking at. I mean, it's not something we're going to solve, I don't think, but um, we will keep a, an eye on it and hopefully keep developing Nicholas's feature about um, taking different surveys from people who are either current students or have graduated with debt and their position on architectural education and how much debt is affecting the profession. So Jared and Elliot, thanks again for coming on. Thank you. It's our pleasure. Thank you. Thanks a lot, guys. All right, moving on. Next uh, topic up is the new Chicago Architecture Biennial. Amelia, you reported on this last week when uh, the uh, the theme of it was just announced, the theme being the state of the art of architecture, which uh, is an allusion to uh, Stanley Tigerman's 1977 conference. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So right now there still isn't so much information uh, out publicly about the um, what's planned for the Biennale, not the Biennale, but the Biennial. <laughs> Can't say how many times I have written uh, Biennale and had to correct it. Um, so the theme based on an original conference in 1977 by um, organized by Stanley Tigerman is, uh, it has been understood that this is purposely vague. So the title, The State of the Art of Architecture is very open-ended, um, very much kind of a barometer reading that the committee that is planned the that is planning the um, next year's biennial is purposely instilling so that they'll have kind of an opportunity in future biennials to continually open up these concepts and not start out on too much of a of a discriminatory foot and just kind of open up the floor for broad topics and. That's certainly corroborated by the one exhibition that I do know will be um, curated there, which is a study of Chicago by Yuan Bon, the famous architecture photographer. So right from the get-go, there's an, I guess, if we're going to kind of speculate what might be discussed here is there's definitely an attention towards media and the representation of architecture in the media. You have someone like Yuan Bon, who's, if you know, if you follow anything about architecture on the internet, you have invariably run into his stuff, his Photos are amazing and quite, um, they're monumental, often taken at like extremely high altitudes and with gigantic scopes. Um, he's not classically, or I don't know if you're classically trained as a photographer, but he's not professionally trained as a photographer, but nonetheless has become kind of the go-to photographer for the architectural industry. 
Um, so I think that that's something to look out for as we hear more about um, the biennial and how it takes shape for, uh, I believe, fall 2015. Um, but another thing that is interesting, having this being hosted particularly in Chicago, is to take a look at Chicago's architectural history and also currently what's going on in Chicago architecturally. Um, you know, we have the big project of the Lucas, I don't, I can never remember the exact title of that museum. It's like the story moving film stories museum or something. Uh, but the George Lucas's giant museum on the waterfront in Chicago um, that is currently being planned. And a few renderings were just released from um, Mad Architects recently, um, Ma Song, who's going to be designing the structure. So I think that the biennial coming on next year will kind of open up a lot of these topics in Chicago that previously might be directed at um, at other places in the country. So I'm looking forward to see to seeing how Chicago in particular is invoked in the biennial. But right now we still don't have so many details to go off on. Um, but I was wondering just to to uh, direct the conversation specifically towards the choice of Iwan Bon. Does anyone like have any particular ideas of what kind of critical engagement that there might be going on with Iwan's work? Because it's so it's so it's so ubiquitous. It's just like it's everywhere. So it seems kind of like a safe choice by some means to include him, but also kind of a, a necessary one just because he's so much um, of the industry. I was excited to hear about about uh, Iwan's commission to document the city, uh, especially after our conversation last week with Barbara Bester, who was describing how he was commissioned to portray Los Angeles for the the Beats by Dre offices in Culver City and how he chose to kind of capture the city through alternative viewpoints rather than the stereotypical um, perspectives, aerial perspectives. I mean, he's he's uh, kind of uh, become known for his aerial photography, especially after the, the uh, amazing... New Yorker cover of New York when it was, uh, when it had the blackout. So it's, uh, I, you know, I think his unique perspective on, on the city coming from, you know, the eye of a photographer is going to lend a really valuable eye to the, to the project. Yeah. I think that the relationship to the Barbara Bester interview from last week, I just made me excited because I thought about that, that comment that, yeah, that he takes views from a slightly different perspective or from somewhere that you're not used to looking at. Chicago is such a beautiful skyline to photograph and it's very famous for its its skyline. You know, they call it the city of big shoulders. It's it's just incredibly photogenic as a city. And um, so I think some getting different views of it is to me a, a way of um, making a parallel with looking at architecture differently. Um, you know, looking not at just the standard, what we might consider to be a standard view of a Biennial. Now I'm going to trip over that word, Amelia, every time. <laughs> I'm sorry, I cursed um, you. No, it's okay. But um, but looking, you know, looking at it from a different point of view, and I think this very uh, very conscious choice to use the same title from Stanley Tigerman's 1977 uh, uh, summit is also an, a, a way of saying, hey, here's something familiar, but we're going to tweak it. Right. Here's here's a familiar thing that we're all used to talking about, but we're going to look at it from a different perspective. And um, I, I think it promises to be really fruitful. I'm really excited about it. You know, I was looking at just looking at his website and I think what the photos that are that I find are very interesting are the ones with this with people in them, um, different viewpoints from a from a much lower perspective. So I think, you know, just looking at some of the, um, the writing about this 
event on curb, you know, it seems like they really want to get get down from the you know ten thousand foot view and really get down to a more human perspective. So I think it, it could be really very interesting to see parts of the neighborhood or the city that don't typically get represented. And I think, like Don said, it's an iconic skyline, but so much of that city is really kind of uh, wonderfully experienced by foot and by the transit system, which I had a fort- uh, fortunate opportunity to do last year. So I'm much more interested in seeing those kinds of photographs. I think that Ewan is more than capable of also um, capturing, you know, regular perspectives too. I mean, his the beauty of his work is that he just makes spaces look amazing. I mean, it, it's I you know I think uh, as the as the uh, photographic represent representative for the uh, for the biennial, uh, he's a, he's he's the perfect choice. Well, what about uh, comparing this exhibition so far to? Uh, the Venice Biennale, which is something that the, um, no, I just, cause it's so, you know, it's so mysterious and so interesting to speculate because the Venice Biennale is obviously one of the incredibly hyped. It's a major international summit. It's just an incredible, um, experience. And of course it goes on for many months and such. And it's just all the attention that it's received just from the last one curated by Rem Kohlhaas. This to me seems like such a small fry by comparison and clearly something that is an attempt to up the North American and particularly the United States, uh, their presence in this kind of international architectural and art conversation. Does anyone have any idea of how this might stack up against the Venice Biennale? Do you think there'll be anything that will, that Chicago can do better <laughs> than Venice? <laughs> well, it'll do Chicago better, of yeah. course. But no, I, I was laughing because I, I, I wonder if the organizers of the Chicago Biennale, when Rem announced the, what was the the term he used? These um, um, like basic morphemes fundamentals? or fundamentals, mm-hmm. if they were thinking, dang it, he stole our, you know, he, he took the theme that we wanted to use because, and I can't find it right now that the term that Tigerman used about um, these various strategies or things that, you know, they used a certain districts, I think was the word that they used. We're going to look at these these various districts that people work within. And I, I, you know, there's certainly going to be some overlap. I think it's, I think of all cities for this to happen in Chicago is the place that it should happen. There's just the history of the world's fair and the, the, the exhibition. Um, and, uh, uh, and Chicago as a place that has often been a lab for designs, maybe not the best versions of buildings, but of experimental attempts at buildings. So I, I you know, no, we're not going to compare to the Venice Biennale yet. But it'll be another voice that I think will start to grow and get respected very quickly. I think the the one concern I have with this is that the same cast of characters that you would expect to see kind of involved, in, even if it's an advisory panel, um, I wish there would be some newer voices. You know, uh, I think the you know Liz Diller, Gene Gang, Frank Gehry. It seems like just the same people that you would the sameness kind of just is a little bit off-putting. I wish you'd see other voices in there that you would not expect. And that would, you know, be just as interesting and maybe have a, a different take on it. But these kind of seem like safe inside the ballpark picks that they all kind of talk to each other anyway. They all know each other. They kind of travel in the same circles. And I just don't, I kind of wonder if there's, there's a missed opportunity here to kind of uh, set a tone for future, um, biennials that um, make this something more spectacular. But you're right. I I totally agree that Chicago is the place to have it. And I'm glad it's happening this close to my home. So 
Yeah, you'll be able to go. It'll be an easy, yes. easy jump. I should be easy. able to go too, because I'm just three hours. Or as they say, because of the time change, it's it's two hours there and four hours back. So <laughs> it'll, it'll be an easy drive. So Ken, who, if you had a wild card to play on the uh, on the organizing committee, who would you like to have gone in there and to maybe shake things up? Two people. I, I, I mean, because I, I just so appreciate their voice and their perspective right now and that I really... I really rather enjoy um, uh, Mitch McEwen because she's right there. I mean, she's, you know, I don't know how close uh, I say right there. She's in the Midwest. So she's in Detroit. Um, that would be one person I would, I would love to see there. And I actually, I really do enjoy Jimenez. Bye. <laughs> I really enjoy his work. I really, I there's, you know, it's weird in films and in music, there are people, once you have a sense of trust about who they, what they're going to do, that no matter what they do, if they take me on a journey that's completely unexpected, I'm happy for that. And I trust those two. I've never met them. I've only seen their work um, and I've read a little bit about them. But I almost entrust, I almost trust them implicitly to do well um, by the profession by bringing their particular voice to, um, to an event like this. And I think those kinds of younger voices just add some joy to a profession that sees people like Gene Gang, Gary, Tigerman, you know, Diller. They, they do, they're really involved already. I mean, are they the future of the profession or are they kind of, you know, they're just kind of marking time at this point. I mean, I like to think that they're not, but you know, I, for, I'm an old guy and I want to see the new voices out there. And I don't think that uh, they're represented here. Right. I think, I think him and his lie said in this, for his, for his book, it's a monograph featuring a small cluster of young and relatively unestablished yet daring architects. That is who I think I would also want to see, um, have a part to play in this, in this biennial. Um, Oh, just, uh, are you talking about the, uh, that's actually a publication, not a monograph that he's Uh, going to. Sorry. The publication is monographic manifestos is what it says. Monographic manifestos featuring a small cluster of young and relatively unestablished yet daring architects. And, and yeah, those are the, the people doing interesting work. And the, uh, to tie it back to the previous discussion about debt, this, the people that are out there saying, well, I have to do something. I have to think of some way to either make money or make a mark or try to establish myself, you know, that, they're, that are doing the, the great work, the really cool work right now. Well, we'll be able to talk with Jimenez about these things uh, because he'll be on the podcast in the next uh, few weeks as soon as we can find a time that works for everyone. Excellent. Anything, anything else on, on the topic of the Chicago biennial? Do I want to mention the, uh, the lawsuit? Ooh. Oh, well, that doesn't really relate to the biennial. <laughs> no, though, I know, it? but it's in Chicago. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I mean, I would say that to, to try to make a tenuous connection between the two, uh, so far what we've, so Donna brought this lawsuit to my attention and please inter- interrupt. Donna brought the lawsuit. No. <laughs> yeah, so Donna is suing the city of Chicago. Um, <laughs> no. You're starting rumors, Amelia. Stop. <laughs> All right. So scratch everything I've said. Um, <laughs> recently, Donna brought to my attention that um, an organization called Friends of the Park have issued a lawsuit against the Lucas Museum in Chicago. And I know very little bit about this at this point in time, and I don't think very much information is public anyway. But loosely, what I do know is that Friends of the Park are simply not uh, happy with having another 
giant institution like the Lucas Museum on the Chicago waterfront because they believe it should be used for um, building the local economy with businesses and such instead of this giant structure. So in the manufacturing of a architectural image for Chicago, this museum is obviously going to be huge. And it's something that Chicago really fought for to get the museum there. And instead of San Francisco, where it was previously being considered. So I, I do think that, you know, while the lawsuit isn't directly about the, the biennial, this will change the atmosphere of monumental architecture in Chicago and kind of add to the history and give something to talk about for the, to discuss the question of what is the state of art of architecture in Chicago. So I think it's something we'll definitely keep an eye on. Um, Donna, is there anything else that you know about it? That No, I, I don't know any more about the lawsuit, except that Blair Kamen was the one who, who tweeted that tomorrow, in fact, the lawsuit will be filed. So we're taping this on Wednesday, so it'll be Thursday. I do wonder, have they, have they announced a venue for this architecture biennial? Or is it going to be multiple venues around the city? Or I, I guess I don't know even that. They've been very um, minimal in how much information they've been letting out about it. Yes, Good question. I, I personally do not know. I have nothing that I've read has alluded to any specific venue. So we'll just see. We'll keep posted on keep it. Keep trucking. Yep. Can I just point out uh, two things that I thought was interesting? I, I read an interview when I saw that this was coming up where Tigerman talks about how he hoped it wouldn't be this kind of this kind of event wouldn't be kind of wouldn't be so safe because of the corporate sponsorship. And, you know, and he really I think he actually sounded hopeful, but I thought it was kind of interesting that the partnership with this is BP, British Petroleum, which, you know, again, you kind of wonder at times when a company, when a corporation puts that kind of money behind something, does it tamper creativity? Does it, does it, does it, does it or is it hamper creativity and tampered kind of put down that kind of um, discussion around their involvement? The other thing I wanted to say is I brought the I wanted to bring up the lawsuit because I just have to say you know you can mark time and day this lawsuit is like a waste is a complete waste of time when when the money the interest like this when this kind of facility is planned or at least thought about and and worked tirelessly in the city of Chicago with Rahm Emanuel the mayor <laughs> it's a waste it's it's I mean I, I there are a lot of things that are a waste of taxpayers money this will become another waste of taxpayers money if the city of Minneapolis mm-hmm. could could fight the lawsuits here to get that stupid stadium built here. And we don't have anyone approaching Rahm Emanuel's skill level in terms of political fisticuffs. Uh, the man's lost half a finger for fighting. Um, so the guy is going to go to the mat for this. And it's just a, it's a real waste of time, I, I, sadly. <laughs> well, if they do move it, I, I propose that they move it to uh, Mazama community where uh, Tom Kundig's hut is going to be forced to move. Perfect. We'll just replace, we'll, we'll replace the hut with uh, <laughs> the Lucas Museum. Yeah, that's a perfect location. Absolutely. And, it, and it, great economic driver for the valley, you know? Yeah. And it fits in with the rest of the mountains. Oh, perfectly. <laughs> just another mountain. No one will even notice it. It'll be like it's cloaked. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Does anybody else have any, uh, any opinions on this topic? Nope. Nope. <laughs> it's so, it's so, you really was. I, I struggled looking through the site, trying to find some things I could kind of grab onto, like, you know, and they're like, like Amelia said, there really was not a whole lot to get from the site about what's actually yeah. happening. I think it's something we're just going to have to keep our heads above water looking at because it's, it's clearly ramping itself up to be a big thing, but we'll be here to decide whether it's really delivering, I guess. We will be. Well, moving on to a little uh, kind of inwardly focused topic to uh, Arcanex lexicon. 
as uh, regular readers of the site, you've probably noticed that we've started this new series titled Archinex Lexicon. The uh, definition of it is that architecture notoriously appropriates and invents new language, sometimes to make appeals, sometimes to fill conceptual gaps, sometimes nonsensically. But once a word is used, it's alive and part of the conversation. And we're here to take notes. Uh, Amelia, do you want to you want to talk a little bit more about the about the backstory of this? Sure. And Paul, let me just tell you that hearing you say the introduction that I wrote to the series out loud is just music to my ears. Sounds great. <laughs> um, just pat to pat myself on the back a little bit. Um, <laughs> well, um, it was nice to have such such well worded uh, prose to to speak. We make a good team, I guess. Yeah. High five over the podcast. <laughs> the thing is, you cannot write an introduction to what is effectively a lexicon. Like if you're starting your own dictionary, you better make sure your introduction is written well. That's all I have to say. <laughs> but the inter- the impetus for the series was um, very personal. Uh, my background is not in architecture. So when I came in to work at Archinect and started writing exclusively about architecture and urbanism, I was very highly aware of how the use of language was kind of foreign to me, how certain fields would be adopted, whether from biology or other scientific realms or other aesthetic realms, to use words in ways that I had never seen before to describe things that architecture in its own discourse didn't have architecturally specific terms to use. And this is a very academic discussion, um, which I think is sometimes insulates it from people really engaging in it critically. But what I thought was so fascinating was how words were just being appropriated for new ways that I hadn't seen before, either appropriated from different places or made up entirely. Uh, so I wanted to try to figure out a way to kind of collect all of those words I see I saw being used interestingly, and then kind of hold them to a standard of scrutiny to see how these words were being used and then throw them back at the audience and say, okay, I've seen these words uh, crop up. Here's what I've taken them to mean. And here's how I'm understanding them being used in the discourse. So the series as a whole will hopefully um, be just an ongoing look at different words that come into the architectural discourse from outside or made up from within and how they operate and how they contribute to the overall discourse. Other than that, I think that it might hopefully at some point then eventually become a dictionary of sorts. I mean, I wouldn't, I hope that it wouldn't be a, a, a completely strict binding agreement, but something that if words start do becoming a constant, uh, a reused in the conversations and cropping up more and more, that people can look back to Archinex lexicon and see, hey, okay, so on this date at this time, someone saw that that word um, was used and it might've been the first time that we ever saw it being used and this is how it was being used. So how has that changed over time? Um, does it still mean the same thing? Is it being used pejoratively or as a um, compliment or just what is the context of it? And this is something that I recognize, like, I think that I can totally nerd out about, but other people might find a little bit uh, completely obtuse and a little bit hard to engage with. So it was another thing about the series is that I wanted people to be able to submit their own words. And if you have a word that you like to use that you either made up or borrowed from someone else, and use it specifically for architecture, we'd love to hear it and try to figure out its etymology and where it came from. So this this relates to something very, and this description you just gave, um, Amelia, uh, of how this would work, it, it, it just relates very much to something that's been a pivotal part of my architecture education and background, which is um, 
a visit I took to the Villa Mueller by Adolf Loos in Prague in 1991. And I was there as, at the time, uh, there was a professor, is a professor named Leslie Van Duzer who was there in Prague teaching. And she kind of helped us arrange to get into this building. And, you know, a lot of architecture students have great stories about travel and how they snuck into certain buildings. This is my story and I'm not going to tell it now, but basically we got into the Villa Mueller to the interior through some some little secret passwords that Leslie Van Duzer helped me with. Um, and she and Kent Kleinman wrote a book about the Villa Mueller um, in which they discuss, they they refer to the, the term thick description. So Amelia, I'm sure you know of this, but for people who don't know, there's a an anthropologist named Clifford Geertz who used this term, coined this term thick description. And it's a way of looking at anthropology, not just reporting the facts, but reporting them within a context of a culture. So it's a way of understanding by adding more to the discussion than just the factual aspects. And what Kleinman and Van Duzer did with the Villa Mueller was they looked at the sort of description of geometry and how the building was purportedly designed and built. But then they looked at the realities of um, how it came together and the cultural climate and the client and how the client had an influence on Lowe's. And it became this much thicker, the book that they wrote about the house is this much thicker and more interesting and poetic description of the house than just doing a series of you know plans and sections and reporting on it. So to me, the, the lexicon is, as you just described, it's a way of, of thinking about things within a culture and a time and placing them in that culture and context so that we understand them better. Yeah, I thank you Donna. That's like a great that's a great instance in which having this for architecture I think is important and using other fields and how they set precedences for how they talk about themselves such as in anthropology or other disciplines uh how setting up a, a standard or at least a, a resource for people to be able to better situate the way that things are discussed within that discourse. Um exactly. And another another corollary to this is the I don't, I don't know if I would call it the aestheticization of architecture or what exactly it can be called, but treating architecture as a piece of art and how that changes how we talk about it. If you've ever gone to a museum show uh, about architecture, say an exhibit um, curated on architecture, chances are the placard on the interior wall of the gallery is going to just be complete drivel, total nonsense, and just like <laughs> absolutely unnecessary and totally non-informative. And that's not because there isn't real information buried in there. It's just because the way that we've learned in American universities and in just like uh, artistic theory and how it's progressed around the world for the like last 40 years or so, just how we talk about, how we learn to talk about these things is through this very muddy and overly descriptive language that doesn't really latch on to anything. And I think architecture discourse in some respects is part of that. Um, so trying to sort through what we do have and put some type of overlying context on it will overall be way more helpful and hopefully constructive to the discourse in the long run. I had never heard of bike wash before. Oh, <laughs> I'm glad. <laughs> no, I, I, and, and I, when I was reading, I'm like, isn't this greenwashing? And, and and sure enough, as I read, you know, as I get down to the end, I'm like, oh, okay, this is a form of, this is kind of a take on the the idea of greenwashing. But I always, I think I come back to the, uh, I think it's kind of kicked around on Arconnect, who invented uh, Starkitect? And I mm, think there's right. been some debate. I think it's, I think it's somehow either 
um, some legend or lore, or some fable that it's actually a originating um, impulse came from Arcanect. Ah, yes. Paul, can you corroborate that's, that? That's anyway? the rumor. <laughs> that is the rumor. I, 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 because even, you know, it was always typed out as Star Architect. And then I actually started hearing people saying Star Architect. And I'm like, no, you're saying it wrong. <laughs> yeah. Saying it. Yeah. I, yeah, I mean, I've heard that too. Um, I've never really done the research to confirm or deny that, but um, I can believe it. I mean, for, for many years, starting in 1997, Arconnect was, uh, you know, the only place that people from around the world were talking about architecture. And so, I mean, it's, it's a word that probably was born through typing. Uh, rather I, than it, it, it must have been Vado Retro, right? Yes. He must have been the one who coined he, it. He's he coined so many other terms. <laughs> I wouldn't doubt that for a second. So we'll have to go back into the Wayback Machine and see if we can find Vado Retro's first use of, of Starkitect. Yes. And it's definitely Starkitect, not Star Architect. Yeah. It, yes. <laughs> and whoever can find that gets a free t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a shout out to Vado there. Uh, so I can get that t-shirt. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he will do it. I'm certain. He will, he will find it. <laughs> <laughs> well, also one of the kind of long term goals for this would kind of to be a way of charting the changing English language over the Internet. I mean, that's like a super hefty thing, but we already have this kind of version of Internet English uh, that English is kind of the de facto language of the Internet. So you have on Arconnect and everywhere you have people from all over the world with any different native language contributing to a community uh, on a certain topic. But in some type of communal English language and how that really has been, there are there have been studies to show that that actually has impacted the both online and offline use of the English language. So I think that there's this fascinating kind of reciprocal reaction where things get discussed online and then they get used in the real world. And something that we've been dealing with on this podcast even is having to pronounce words that we've never had to say before. So, you know, you're writing about something and you're sending emails on a topic on, or whatever, and then it comes time to actually say it out loud. And you're like, oh, <laughs> maybe I don't know how to pronounce this. Or, or, and maybe that pronunciation gets manipulated over time and usage to mean and be written as something completely different than how it started. So that's like my totally wonky like fascination with how English language works and how I hope that this can kind of be a little bit of an artifact for charting that progress. Hey, Donna, can you talk a little bit about how you were thinking about this particular topic and Jimenez post? So Jimenez, there was a post about Jimenez lies, um, the, the little sneak preview he gave us of the um, of the book that was funded by the Graham Foundation, or, or, or I believe that's right. It was it was um, it was. Uh, yeah, uh, the Graham Foundation uh, awarded Jimenez lie a, a grant to do this book. And so he's gathering he's calling it manifesto summits and gangs and it's a collection of of just various takes on architecture by lots of people who are not famous yet and who are doing maybe really interesting work and i was just struck by the fact that in the comments section everyone seemed to think that this was just a waste of time and money that you know it that the little um sneak peek he gave us was just showing a bunch of people playing around with photoshop and not you know doing anything more interesting than that but um but that to me is what what made me start thinking about, again about this notion of thick description and the idea of adding information as you describe something. Um, you know, the, if you look through the other Graham Foundation awards, there are awards for things like a study of of um, 
you know, historic, uh, how the vacuum cleaner affected uh, domestic architecture in the 1930s. You know, so there's some things that are very sort of historical and 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 uh, scholarly. And then I think that we also need to have room for these things that are much more exploratory and interesting and um, um, give you a different lens through which to look at the, the work simultaneously to the very academic stuff. Um, and so to me, the, the lexicon is also, it's giving that. It's giving, like, as you say, Amelia, it's it's um, both anthropological and sort of factual. You know, it, the, the words are becoming used this way and we can't slow that down. So at least we can look at culturally where, how that happened, how that those words came into use. Um, I think a lot of people do go into architecture school and sometimes I've been on critiques where they invite guest critics um, from who are not architects in, but maybe they're a specialty in the field of hospital design, hospitals or, or use or they're a veterinarian or someone who knows the topic, but not how architects talk, talk about it. And they frequently are very confused um, because they don't really know why and how we use words in the certain ways that we do. Um, you know, we, we use we use words like um, like investigate or or um, um, we're going to 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 dig certain things. We're going to excavate the meaning out of this, and people look at us like, "What? What, what does that have to do with building a building?" So, <laughs> uh, um, yeah, I think that that there's room for us to have lots of various approaches to studying and looking at and talking about architecture. And if Jimenez has these great ideas that are going to be really curious and make people think in new ways. I would say that Jeff Manna's building blog has always done this as well, sort of looking more poetically at things. And the lexicon is then just just another part of this. Yeah, the uh, the reaction to this publication in the comments kind of blew me away. I mean, it seemed like there was such a surface level knee jerk reaction. You know, it's like there didn't seem to really be an understanding of the distinction between this this teaser, which uh, Jimenez actually, you know, reinforced to me when describing it that it's purposefully vague. Right. Um, it, it didn't seem like any of the commenters bothered even reading what the what the intention was with this publication, which I think is incredibly interesting and and valuable to to uh, you know architectural discourse. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. But then again, you know, I mean, the, the commenters that we're talking about are kind of, uh, you know, they have a track record. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's what was so interesting about and that's why I brought it up is that I thought it was interesting is that the three three characters that were in there talking were basically like talking to themselves about how and no one was actually going in there challenging them because I think, again, I think most people saw it for what it was, which was, you know, deliberately vague, kind of very um, you know, the one firm, the one group was like really eight bit or 16 bit had that really kind of like old school kind of video game. And I was like, wow, this is very interesting. I have no idea where I'm going. And, and I'm, I'm, I, I can't imagine. And I think this is what's so problematic for me. I'm a guy, I'm a practitioner, but at the, at my core belief is that I'm genuinely interested about what makes this profession work and the things that aren't practitioner based um, that I'm absolutely fascinated by stuff that takes me in a place that I'm not comfortable with. And I'm going to give that person a lot of room to work in. And it seems like there's a large part of this profession and, and, and very well represented on the website in some, in some respects that sees these things as frivolous and don't add value to, to what I, what I think about 
or to what they think about. And it's frustrating to think that I would go to a school and spend five years and be someone who punches a time card and is satisfied with building mundane things and not go home and dream about the things that I that I dreamed about in school. I mean, I, I would be dead inside. And it just it's become painfully aware to me that certain people are just not interested in anything that explores the boundaries of of creativity, construction, uh, or architecture. And it's I'm kind of at a loss at times to even how to approach those kinds of people. But, um, you know, I think it was pretty telling that the three people that did say something were kind of left to their own devices to kind of back themselves into a corner. Unfortunately, you know, just the nature of the web, you know, when, when a discussion starts like that, I think it immediately turns away anybody who wants to contribute something of value. So, I mean, unfortunately we were left, we were left with that as, as a response instead of, you know, um, getting some kind of discussion going, you know, that, that would match the value of, of this, uh, this publication. But, you know, that's the way it is. People are, people are used to that and, uh, we're not going to start censoring people for posts like that. But, um, you know, I think, I think, uh, culture is still trying to learn how to navigate this new medium. <laughs> and issues like this also make me, you know, constantly look at ways that we can improve the, uh, the commenting system. Maybe, you know, maybe, I don't know, this is getting into a whole other, yeah. whole other topic. <laughs> you know, honestly, th- this particular topic and the other one that's very interesting to me is about drawing, hand drawing, computer skills. And, and it kind of goes with what I'm, you know, I'm reading the book that um, I was asked to review or one of the books I asked to review for Wiley and thinking about Neil Spiller and these other like Perry uh, Culper and uh, all these other very, very interesting um, architects and they're architects. They're not like, they're not artists, they're architects, they're professionals and they're developing these. They're not saying that hand drawing is the only way to go or computers are the only way to go. They're kind of creating this new, new hybrid that I'm really just totally taken by. And I, I love the book. I, I love what I've been reading. And this kind of connects to that for me in a lot of ways, just thinking about how much bigger architecture is and our narrow preconceived notions around classical or modernist. And it's just such a, a rich, um, diverse profession that I, I, I hate for those people to kind of shut down discussion. But I, knowing that, again, if it was a this healthy discussion happening and you had these idiots in there, then I would have a, it would be hard to navigate, but knowing that there's a, a group of three people kind of shouting at the clouds and uh, pointing the fingers um, in, in other directions, it kind of gives me some, you know, that people aren't willing to engage that. And that's good too. Well, you know, this kind of reminds me a little bit um, of the, the whole uh, Ernan Diaz Alonso news, you know, of him, becoming the next director of SciArc, there was, there was a lot of, um, there was a lot of critical response to that when it was announced. But the interesting thing is that, you know, that was before there was really any specific issues brought to the table. You know, there was a lot of kind of, uh, unfounded, uh, criticism, but, um, but then after we, we, uh, after Amelia sat down with him and, and had this lengthy interview in, in our Dean's List series, you know, discussing his intentions and his background and everything, there was no response. 
<laughs> I mean, it, it's like, it's like, you know, now, now you have an opportunity to, to critically respond now that everything's been laid out on the table. But I, I think that people prefer to, to respond to things that are more vague. Uh, anyways, um, I think, I think it's time to start wrapping up. We've already, we're already approaching an hour and 45 minutes <laughs> to those of you out there, out there that are still with us. You're awesome. I'm going to drop a bombshell. Hang on, hang on. Hold on. <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah, that was, uh, that was episode six. Wide ranging. Uh, Wide yeah, ranging. I, the student debt issue is definitely, I mean, we're going to continue investigating this uh, through Nicholas's feature. I think there's a lot of topics surrounding that, the issue of debt and tuition, you know, um, that, that we can continue talking about in the podcast as well. Um, everything that we talked about today actually is, is um, addressing either ongoing issues or unraveling news. So um, we'll, have, we'll have more time to talk about it. So if I'm cutting anybody short, know that you'll have another opportunity to talk about it in the coming weeks. Any uh, endorsements? I have a yeah. couple. You go, you go, Ken. Okay, great. Um, so today I just saw, I don't know if it got posted today, but there's the interview with um, with my friend in um, design, uh, Kareem Rashid. <laughs> ah, yes. The New York Times is a little snappy interview. Um, with the New York oh, Times. Your, <laughs> your good friend. Yes. Um, I, I so I so enjoy his his take on how easy how much more interesting it is to design products that outlive their usefulness within two years of my cell phone contract ending. Um, <laughs> Zing. So and I love hearing about how how architecture is just kind of pedestrian, rather easy to do. So that is gathering steam as we speak. Um, the comments should surely be flying as uh, the day goes on. Uh, so I'm really interested in seeing how that manifests itself into something. Um, maybe a tumbler um, of Frank Gehry giving him the middle finger. I'm not sure. Um, but the other thing that I've really, um, I saw today and I'm really going to read thoroughly tonight is um, what Amelia posted today, the proposal for the future of Auschwitz, Birkenau. Birkenau. So I'm really interested in reading that. I I find sites like this interesting, difficult to want to visit. Um, 9, uh, the 9-11 Memorial is another site for me that is, I, I'm, I'm trying to understand what makes sites like these places for that people want to visit. So I'm very interested in that. Yeah, that was a fascinating proposal to kind of have to sift through and frankly, quite emotionally taxing to even write about um, because also just having to divorce it from any type of urban context and then put it in a religious context. There's just so much that's fraught and so many implications and also just the the mundanity of having to figure out how many parking spaces and tourist bathrooms you need to have at a place like Auschwitz. It's pretty, pretty terrifying. So that was um, a really, uh, I, I will say it was very difficult to write, but very overwhelming, uh, very um, rewarding in the end and a super interesting project, also a grant funded proposal. So I would encourage everyone to go check that out. Is a proposal by Idea Office out of Los Angeles for um, a new memorial surrounding Auschwitz concentration camp. Yeah, I like what I, I saw there. Um, I'm always interested in things, in pieces like this, how they reflect time. Um, and the idea about these laws, it's just very striking to me and very plays very much into, um, um, a lot of what I think about in terms of these kinds of spaces and, and places. So I wanted to, to, uh, to mention this, my endorsement for the week is, um, 
a a post that Orhan put up, uh, and it, it's a an interview with uh, Rory Hyde, and it's from a year ago. It's on the website Failed Architecture, um, but it's it's incredibly relevant to me, it, and it relates directly to what we were talking about with the SciArc students about um, having to find new ways of practicing. Um, Rory uses this term unsolicited architecture. Um, and what he means by that is people going out into the city and just doing things and um, he and and making an impact on how cities get built. He talks a lot in this interview about should architects really focus just on buildings or are we more interested in focusing on how humans inhabit? Um, and he says, you know, cities are not buildings. Buildings come up because cities want to grow, right? We start to build things because we want to inhabit a place. And so um, it, it relates very much to work that Killian Riano is doing and to the uh, to the lecture that I gave at the AIA um, Regional Convention, which I just was invited to submit it as a proposal for the AIA National Convention this year. So I'm hoping that that will go through. Um, that talks about how um, architects come out of school and there are many, many other talents that we can bring to how we inhabit the world. Um, and Killian says in his group design agency, you know, frequently a building is not the answer. And that's what um, Rory Hyde says in this book, Future Practice, as well, that we think about buildings, but frequently a building is not the thing that you need to create a solution to how humans are going to inhabit a place. And so this much more flexible thinking about how we approach our discipline is, I think, necessary in coming years. And uh, we're going to see more of it. And I'm going to keep looking at it. Cool. Thanks, Donna. Amelia, do you have any endorsements? I just, this would, I would like to draw a little bit of an attention to a feature we published about a week ago um, uh, called The Wandering Architect, One Student's Lessons Learned from Working Abroad uh, by uh, Paul Keskis. I hope I'm saying that right. Um, and I just, I thought this was like a really just very simply, but very well-written piece on what it's like as a architect abroad coming to work in a different country. Um, there are so many practical things to consider in any situation of trying to work abroad, um, it can seem completely overwhelming, despite um, if you're attached to a university, there are so many different avenues set up for that kind of thing. But just to hear someone's take their own personal experience and try to kind of distill it down and to help other people, I think it was a great resource for someone who, not in architecture, but who has tried to work abroad and run up into so many difficulties with it. Um, I found it really interesting to read and overall quite hopeful. So I'd like to definitely recommend Paul Kesky's uh, Wandering Architect feature. Yeah, that's a that's a great endorsement, and uh, I would actually like to endorse Paul's uh, next piece, which he's going to also be giving us kind of his own personal perspective on 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 his world of architecture. Um, it, Paul is uh, is British uh, architect who's been working here. He's he's been in San Francisco working at Architecture for Humanity, and his next piece is actually it's called Invasion, and it's uh, it's his own firsthand view of gentrification. In nice. the USA, based Ooh. on based on his observations, awesome. So Sounds so great. watch, yeah, watch out for yeah. that. Yeah. One thing that I that I would like to just uh, kind of suggest that people kind of do a little research on is the issue of uh, network uh, net net neutrality. Um, <laughs> Ken, Ken, you're going to love this. Uh, the other day, Senator uh, Ted Cruz um, kind of uh, w was uh, quoted famously quoted as saying that net net neutrality is Obamacare for the internet. Yeah. yeah. What a dick. And yeah, I mean, and it's just, you know, so I think, I think his comment is, is representative of a lot of, you know, ridiculous kind of extreme dialogue that we're going to be hearing a lot about. Um, but the interesting thing is that, you know, net, net neutrality 
is actually very similar to an old idea called, what is it called again? Carriage, uh, carriage. Anyways, it's, it's, it's the idea that, um, that infrastructure should be shared equally as net neutrality promotes the equal uh, distribution of, of internet traffic. I think it's really important that net neutrality is, um, is maintained. You know, there's, there's a lot of talk now that it's, uh, that it's not going to be, uh, remain neutral as it has been. Um, and obviously there's a lot of corporate commercial interest in, in changing that. But, um, but I think, you know, the more people learn about net neutrality and, and its importance on, on our culture and innovation in general, you know, I think once, once net neutrality starts to break down, if it does, we're going to see a lot less, you know, interesting innovation um, and a lot less uh, coming out of, you know, the small guys. Absolutely. It's a huge topic. And, and it is surprising that there aren't, isn't more attention to it. But didn't the president just say something about how he thinks the Internet should be a utility? Yes, absolutely. This week also. Mm-hmm. And the FCC is inclined to agree with him. Um, at least that's the early reports. And and from one of the other things I, I heard about this is that a lot of the big um, Internet or a lot of the big uh, companies that have a vested interest in this are kind of staying on the sidelines and not pushing uh, pushing this issue, um, you know, getting rid of it. So I think, I don't know, maybe Google didn't have any um, vested interest in it, but I think there are some um, positions out there at least suggesting that their uh, their voice is not hampering the uh, president in this way. So. Fortunately, this is not an issue that Congress gets to vote on and gets a FCC gets to take care of it. So, Well, I wrote my letter to the FCC like a year ago. I mean, it's been a topic for a long time, so yeah. just have to do it again. I did mine after, uh, I did mine after um, John Oliver did his piece on HBO. <laughs> so you crashed the I, FCC's website? I helped crash the website, yes. <laughs> <laughs> the John Oliver effect. Awesome. All right, guys. Well, thanks for... Thanks for uh, participating again in this ongoing discussion. Um, oh, can I can I say one more thing? And I may be preempting you here, Paul. Yes, of course. I just wanted to point out the hashtag again, the Arconnect Sessions hashtag, that um, we really are interested in hearing from people what you'd like to hear us talk about or what ideas you have. So um, use the, uh, I've, I'm getting all my news from Twitter lately for the most part. So use the Arconnect Sessions hashtag, everyone, and, and let us know. Thank you for bringing that up. And also, um, we have a, a phone number now that you can call in and share your ideas about the podcast and pitch things to talk about, give us feedback. Um, if you do call in and leave a message, uh, we're assuming that we're going to be, uh, you're giving us permission to use your voice in the, in the podcast. We will reach out to you as long as you leave your, some kind of contact information to get, to get approval. If you don't leave contact information, we're, we're going to assume that, um, that, that you're giving us that permission. But anyways, just to, just to reiterate that, the phone number is area code 213-784-7421. And you can call in with your voice instead of your keyboard and uh, give us a piece of your mind, whatever that is. And you've got two minutes to do it. So, and if you've got something more to say, that two minutes does not allow for just, you know, leave your name and number or email address and we'll get back to you and maybe you can be a guest on our podcast yeah and besides that twitter we're on twitter we're on facebook we're on pinterest if you like to you know if you don't like to read and uh yeah we'll be back next week we've got we've got some more interesting topics to talk about 
And thanks again, everybody. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Good talking to you guys. Likewise. Have a good week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.